0: Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discussed whistleblowing and payback, learned about architecture and engagement, and discovered sustainable agriculture within our city limits. All this plus size matters, the Trump Diaries, and Are We Cool Yet? only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for September 13th, 2019. John and Jamie spoke with architects Sarah Raffson and Lumpen's own Kiefer Dunn about Now What, an exhibition of architecture opening at the co-prosperity sphere. What is radical thought in architecture and how can buildings engage with people in the public sphere? Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, Drive Time.
1: Kiefer Dunn from Buildings on Air is with us today on Radio Free Bridgeport. Welcome to the show, Kiefer. Thanks, Jamie. So we are talking about a brand new architecture show. Why don't you welcome our guest? She's calling in from Pittsburgh. She's part of Now What? Hey Sarah, how's it going?
2: Hey guys, how are you doing? So
3: this is uh, Sarah Rafson of Pointline Projects. Um, Sarah's helping curate uh, the, sh- the show that's coming up here in the CoPro.
1: Yeah, the show, of course, starts on Friday. The opening is at 6.30, correct, with a panel? Yeah, that's right. 6.30 to 8.30. So tell us, first of all, I mean, my wife always tells me that architecture sucks. So <laughs> why why should we actually care about this exhibit at the Co-Prosperity Sphere? Uh,
3: yeah, well, uh, these are a bunch of architects who I think it's fair to say, Sarah, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, are, who are trying to make architecture uh, not suck uh, <laughs> or, or suck less. I, yeah. It's like a, a, a rousing uh, vote of support and confidence, uh, but... Uh, uh, the whole the whole kind of premise of Now What and all this related programming um, is to really highlight uh, activism and advocacy uh, within the profession and folks with a kind of um, progressive e-bent uh, who are trying to reform the profession or use the tools at architects' disposal to make the world a better place. Yeah,
2: that's a great description, Keeper, and I, I would just say um, I feel like For the people who love architecture, because it's like massive buildings that are sort of plopped onto cities in this very heroic way, they might not find that this shows the architecture that they love, but the people who are grassroots activists who are out in their communities on the ground might come to this exhibition and actually see that maybe they like architecture, (laughs) that it's not all about displacing people or... you know, representing power or building palaces for the wealthy that actually can be an instrument for social progress um, in many ways. So I think that's what we try to show here.
1: Okay, now wait a minute, wait a minute. I've always been told that architecture is about big buildings on Lake Michigan, and there's a little boat, in fact, that (laughs) is called the Architecture Tour, and it takes me down this river that's highly polluted and, and, and tells me about these things. So are you telling me that architecture is something different? (laughs) <laughs> than uh, giant buildings that are, are, are covered in filigree? Uh, for me, it, it, it is, yeah. And
3: I think, uh, you know, I, I have a little neighborhood practice um, down the street here, and... You know it's it's very humble and uh, i think the show also highlights a lot of practitioners who, who uh, have a real kind of social justice bent uh, i also think uh, who, who engage the community in what they're designing who really kind of seek out opportunities to do architecture that is that is uh humble maybe not even necessarily just in scope um, but kind of humble in its uh, approach to the world Um, I also think that there's an important dimension of this show, too, which uh, kind of showcases people who do work at kind of the large firms that that do that sort of building, trying to uh, reform those firms from outside, but also from the inside, um, you know, to be kind of more diverse and more inclusive and more kind of sensitive to uh, social justice issues.
1: So, Sarah, I didn't believe a single thing that Kiefer just said. So <laughs> why don't you actually tell me, uh, in all, and in all seriousness, I mean, Kiefer and I actually, I produce Kiefer's show, so I'm being a little arch here. Long-time and <laughs> listeners know this. But in all seriousness, when, when we talk about architecture, I do feel sometimes that people only think about it in terms of giant buildings. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah. uh, you know, when Kiefer's talking about it, I think he's speaking of it at a place from He's, he's a little bit speaking to the converted or speaking to uh, people that kind of are already in the club. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that uh, people don't necessarily understand is that architecture is more than buildings. And this isn't a diss on yeah. Kiefer at all. He's a wonderful moron, as we all know. <laughs> um, but if you could maybe talk a little bit about what you guys are doing and how you are trying to broaden the idea of architecture, Beyond, again, just beautiful gold-covered buildings, uh, the kind of things that I think that the average person thinks about when they think about the built environment. And, in fact, if you could talk a little bit about the concept of the built environment, because I think that's something that maybe most uh, people listening to this radio show won't even have considered or, or know what I'm talking about. Yeah.
2: Well, I think one of the biggest things, and, you know, I love those boat tours because, and I love Chicago because, everybody is interested in architecture. You know, you don't have to convince somebody, like in Pittsburgh, where I am, that you have to talk that architecture is cool at all. I think it's, those boat tours are great because you go around and you see beautiful pieces of sculpture. I think what we're doing in this exhibition and what's important to think about is to take a look behind the sculpt- uh, these beautiful works, look at who is behind the work. So in our exhibition, you're actually not going to see a lot of buildings or a lot of, you will see a couple of proposals for buildings. What you're going to see more are the faces behind the building. Because on that boat tour, you also hear a lot of names. You hear maybe Frank Lloyd Wright, or, you know, Muse or, you know, singular names that, uh, you know, that sort of represent what people think of when they think of an architect. They think of a, um, a great guy who just sits down and draws a cool building. Um, that's actually very far from what architecture practice really is. However, it's not very far in terms of being uh, talking about the fact that most architects are white men. And what we're trying to show is how, since the civil rights movement, um, architects have been really involved with giving agency to more communities to be part of the um, process of shaping the built environment, shaping the buildings around them, and shaping cities. So that's part of what you're going to see in the exhibition, is the story of how women, minorities, have bounded together to form alliances to sort of show themselves as part of the process um, and argue for inclusion in uh, this really important art that we call building.
1: So it's really interesting you say that just to, to kind of jump back in here. I mm-hmm. uh, There are obviously male architects and female architects. I'm thinking of Zaha Hadid who just passed away and, and at her time of her death she was obviously one of the most popular builders in the world, but are you saying that the entire thing that Anne Rand told me in the Fountainhead is a lie?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm going to say that in some ways. Um, there are certain things that, uh, that we can challenge there. Like, the architect, Architects don't work alone, and I think that's something that Kiefer talks a lot about in his show, and um, that we're going to discuss a lot, or in his radio show, and we're going to discuss in this exhibition, is that architecture is a very collective practice. And it's usually not just architects working alone. And what we show here is how architects can bound together with other organizations um, like community groups or other trades like engineers and sort of form alliances to um, create the world in, a, in an image that, um, that is more just and equitable.
1: Now, why is that? Why should anybody care about that? Not, not to put too fine a point on that, why, why should somebody care about that? Isn't there an idea that you know, a developer builds buildings and the building is there to house people or to, to build businesses? What, what is the, the backstory here that people should be concerned about architectural practice in terms of creating things in a city?
3: Well, uh,
1: you know, I think architects are we're,
3: we're licensed um, at the level of the state. And the reason for licensure is ostensibly to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public. Um, I think in the past, that's really meant a kind of technical knowledge about buildings to make sure that they, you know, don't catch on fire, don't fall down, that sort of thing. I've, I've had experience catching <laughs> on fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think also, um, you know, na- now the world is a very kind of complex place, and I think... Uh, architects are really finding their kind of ethical feet. Um, I mean, there's always been a kind of co- professional code of ethics. But I think um, I think what we're seeing is an interest among architects in expanding that kind of idea about the health, safety and welfare to not just in- to include more things than just does your building stand down and like, does it not hurt you? <laughs> right. Um, so the the uh, most well, all buildings uh, uh, require a permit for the most part in, in the state in this country and um, if it requires a permit uh, chances are an architect is going to touch it at some point Um, now there's lots of architects who kind of don't care they want to you know get get their (laughs) get their fee and and move on to the next thing Um, and I think that this show is kind of Uh, Planting a flag in the ground and and trying to make the argument internal to the profession, too, um, that, you know, uh, the kind of ethical commitment of architecture goes kind of well, well beyond um, uh, just making sound structures and so hopefully hopefully pe- folks will come to the show and, and kind of see that and some of the ways in which architects are um kind of trying to change the profession in that way um and also join in uh, i mean i think the show the show kind of has this uh it's a pretty sprawling timeline of a, a lot of different ways that architects have kind of sought to um strengthen their commitment to the public. And so I mean, hopefully people will come and, and give us ideas. There's kind of um, spa- space for that in, in the show.
1: I imagine yeah. that idea has uh, evolved greatly over a short amount of time. Just thinking about the general challenges that you have uh, in building around the turn of the century um, versus today. What challenges, You know, as you said, just the actual structure uh, standing. Um, I guess was probably the first issue <laughs> yeah. uh, when you're dealing with multi-story buildings. This is one of the, the leaders, I guess, in, in the region, uh, in the world here uh, in, in building multi-story buildings. But um, bringing that point into 2019 and thinking about um, what ideas are maybe helping with the quality of life or um, the public spaces in between those buildings, how, how they're shared, um, I guess I'm, I'm imagining would be some of the, uh, the questions. Yeah,
3: totally. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I think um, I think we're, we're, there's a kind of quote from uh, this architect Ed Ford, uh, who, who wrote about architectural detailing. Um, and and he talks about how the way that architects expressed their kind of social concerns uh, in the 20th century was primarily through a kind of concern about the welfare of the people who are doing the construction, right, like the, the actual uh, tradespeople. people um, and, and now in the 21st century um, we really are uh, kind of focusing on the, the, the kind of behavior and the way that people interact with each other in, in spaces and in buildings and in cities um, and, and kind of under understanding that there's a kind of you know these there's a, these are social relationships like the the relationship that you have with a neighbor kind of is, is strongly influenced by the built environment and whether you you know you have like a if you have a kind of bay window and you can poke out you know your head down the street and see what's going on right or or if you have a stoop i mean i, I love uh, the stoop is such a good example for <laughs> For For this, I mean, I, you know, and you know we don't we don't have a section on stoops in the show. I uh, maybe we need to add one, <laughs> but but, <laughs> but you know this this the the kind of uh, you know in Chicago, we have a great stoop culture where people hang out on their on their stoops and you get to say hi to your neighbors and you kind of get to meet people. and I think that there's all kinds of really humble ways in which architecture operates, um, and then there's also you know big picture developments. To where I think you know the the architect uh, can be if if they want um, a kind of agent for the good and for and, and a kind of voice for um, the general public potentially. <laughs>
0: Badcock spoke to Jason Hammond about hacking, cybersecurity, and the penalties whistleblowers are facing today. Hammond's brother Jeremy has been incarcerated for seven years following the Stratfor hack, which revealed how major corporations have been spying on private citizens. TechScene Chicago with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday
4: at 1. Um, your brother Jeremy Hammond is a, is a hacker uh, from Chicago who has been um, uh, transferred recently for um, for uh, to Alexandria, Virginia, who is facing some uh, s- serious charges for a grand jury and things. Um, before we dive deep into all of that, though, uh, can you give us an introduction to what electronic civil disobedience is and his fascination with it?
5: Very good. So, yeah, just going straight into the nitty-gritty heavy stuff. All mm. right. Heavy stuff. All yeah. right. Yeah. So, the way I like it. Here, electronic civil disobedience is basically just civil disobedience on the Internet. It's a, the same thing, a disruption of the norm to make change in the world. Technology opens many doors, and when people try to close doors, there will be those who, try to, who are imaginative enough to open them. Mm. And if upon opening doors there is evidence of corruption, the people have a right to know. If there are weaknesses in the systems of exploitative and oppressive organizations, they ought to be utilized for the common good. Mm-hmm. Sometimes this means breaking laws, a central theme to civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. For hackers have always understood laws as artificial barriers made by governments and the rich and powerful in order to better divide and subject the people. Mm-hmm. Law, if laws were meant to protect the rich, and by breaking law you do as people a service, then let the laws be damned.
4: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, well, well that that gets us started uh, off really nicely there. Uh, wonderful. Okay, and then um, can you also tell us a bit about you, Jason, and what you're currently doing for a living, and uh, and what um, and uh, you live in Chicago, correct?
5: Oh yes, yes, yes. Um, I've been a resident here along with my brother for the, probably the best, maybe fifteen or so years. Mm-hmm. Um, I just like just a small disclaimer: I am not my brother. I get confused a lot. We actually look a lot alike, um, and uh, so. I also, that, I mean, I wish, I look forward to the one day that German could be here to have a, be on this radio show, talk about his exploits and all his trials and tribulations, and adventures in the hacking world. One day, but in the meantime, um, I will do my best to kind of answer these very heavy, serious questions uh, about you know hacking culture and all that, and do it justice as much as I can. Myself, I'm a musician. I've lived in Chicago, and I work in restaurants. I'm also an activist, I do um, a number of kind of volunteer activist work over the years. Um, so you know, uh, I have fully support my brother and all, all that stuff. And uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, doing the same thing as he is, except I'm out here and he's in there.
4: Mm, yeah. Well, and since you both grew up here, um, what elements of Chicago's technology and hacking culture supported Jeremy in developing his abilities early on?
5: Well, um, I would say that Chicago is a down city, a badass city, full of people who don't take crap from capitalists and fascists. And there is a strong counterculture and DIY self-organized networks, which are true models for future societies. When, you know, fascists try to organize rallies, they get met with hundreds of protesters and are and uh, are too scared to return. When Trump came to visit, he didn't even get to speak because the protests were overwhelming. This is a city that can take care of itself and definitely inspire Germany and others to find creative new ways to resist. Um, and, you know, the I would say that that... would answer your question.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We have time. Just, uh, yeah, tell us more. Tell us more. This is good. You're on a roll.
5: Well, I mean, would I say that uh, the... That the city of Chicago kind of supported Jeremy. Yes, they had, they definitely always have. There's a number of grassroots communities that have always like known Jeremy as being around and participating in. For example, like Occupy and all that. Um, mm-hmm. A number of other protest movements that he's been participating in. So you know when the when the WikiLeaks hack went down initially, there was a lot of like Chicago was like, oh, this is what happened, and we know Jeremy. This is right on right on brand with the kind of thing, you know that uh, it's that we're about to, is really kind of what I would say.
4: Mm. And what, well, what is it about Chicago's underground cultures, in, in your opinion, that inspires people to live unique lives and do things that are out of the ordinary?
5: Well, <clears throat> Chicago's a big city, so there's going to be a lot of different answers for that. Um, I would say it's, it's the DIY networks, the kind of, uh, you know, make-your-own-scene, the kind of find-your-own-adventure uh, sort of uh, philosophy that is definitely like, basically informative and learning for, you know, the, the sort of hacktivist perspective that my brother um, is part of. And, you know, the, the rebellious spirit is pretty strong here. We don't like, uh, we don't, we're pretty far left, I'd say, in comparison to a lot of other cities, you know. So these were kind of, I mean, I'm not to say that, that these are definitely influencing factors for Germany and, you know, the city of Chicago has come up has a lot of remarkable activists over the years um, that have been doing amazing things and Jeremy's no had no way unique amongst them.
4: Mm-hmm. Well yeah, um, I like what you when you said make your own scene. That I like that. It's a uh, M Y O S almost. Yeah, <laughs> I like exactly. that. I'm gonna I wrote that one down. Please okay. <laughs> yeah. And then um, do, do you do you think the kind of path your brother was on was, was supported by Chicago in this area?
5: Yeah. You know, I mean um, when, when he got popped, people were rallying, free Jeremy, because, uh, you know, it was persecution on whistleblowing and activists um, and journalists and hackers. You know, there's kind of like a blur with Jeremy's case because it's sort of a mix between hacking and whistleblowing because he wasn't uh, – we'll talk more about the, the actual hack later, the Straffer hack. But, um, yeah, like people like Chelsea Manning are uh, whistleblowers. Like they're, they're revealing – they're sharing documents – uh, that, are, that they are from organizations they are part of, and uh, Jeremy was a computer hacker, so he broke into systems in order to show their exploits or to, to show their corruption and provide greater transparency. Uh, I would feel that these are values that uh, the Chicago uh, activist community share, and um, for that reason, that Jeremy's case has been pretty well supported, I would say, um, across the board in the city of Chicago and elsewhere. Hmm.
4: Well, now, now, what about Jeremy's experience uh, hacking into UIC's website? And I, and I, I wanted—I know it's, it's been written about, it's been, you know, documented in, in many different uh, news articles and whatnot. Uh, do you think attitudes have improved towards this type of activity since then?
5: <clears throat> well, to address that, uh, UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago, Jeremy uh, was a student um, in the computer science department back in the day. And so for those what happened, he basically, like, hacked the website for, like— an hour or something um, and just took it down for an hour. I'm purely speculating about his intentions, but pretty much that was a prank intended to raise eyebrows at the computer science department. Breaking into a system to show its vulnerabilities to its owners is, in order to secure a job or impress someone is a classic gray hat hacker move. It's how he actually got his first job at a Mac specialist store in high school. But UIC didn't like the joke, and when Jeremy also got popped for spray painting on campus one time, they booted him from the university. Mm-hmm. But Jeremy has matured into a full-grown black hat hacker anyway. And but which is you know just the break everything without with, without you know telling the people exactly you know. But white and gray hat hackers are generally working for security institutions or, mm-hmm. the, or security in general. And then the question of whose security is being protected. So for example, like if someone were to hack un, the University of Illinois um, to, to secure a job, but that wasn't really his, that, that isn't really his MO now because you know um, that, that just wasn't his, he's not looking for a job in security or trying to impress people or anything for a job or anything, he's kind of more on the social activism aspect of hacking.
6: Size matters size matters Smith, Kyle Size Kowski. Just 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 hey, I I need them bowl cutters of mine again.
7: Kyle, we've been over this no bolt cutters until you stop using Ah. them to cut the
6: lock off my bicycle. How dare you, Jessica. I wouldn't have to cut the lock if you didn't keep locking it up. Besides, how could I have stolen your bicycle if you still have it? Because
7: all six times I caught you, and I took it back.
6: Yeah, that's fair.
7: Uh, God knows what would happen if you got away with it. You don't even know how to ride a bicycle. What thievery are you up to now?
6: Jess, I am softened by that remark. If truth be known, I am trying to secure myself gainful employment. With bolt cutters? With with what is behind this fence over here on Morgan. Feast your eyes on the rarest of floor finds. Tree saws. This
7: is an active construction site. I I just saw these guys pop
6: over to Saluri's for lunch. Well, it looks like it ain't that active then. Listen, just stand back and let me get to work over here. I have liberates them. Freedom is now mine. I still don't get this. It's very easy, Jess. Pulaski Savings Bank is always needing tree service, and with these tools, I can provide that service. And from that, I can parlay it into some fall-time haggerswaggle.
7: Kyle, you're like 70 years old? <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Tree cutting is arduous work. Are you sure you're physically up for this? I got
6: some million-dollar marketing idea, so just sit back and watch. What are you jokers doing now?
7: Oh, Kyle's trimming trees at the bank. They're giving him 60 bucks.
0: Is he okay? He looks a little pale. Um, I think he might be having a heart attack, actually.
7: Hmm, that's just his regular clammy sweat and deathly complexion.
6: You jagoffs can say what you want, but my treeway system is going to change the industry.
7: (laughs)
4: Your what?
6: Yeah, it's my system to gin up business. All over Bridgeport are trees that need trimming. (laughs) Look at this. (laughs) Look at this sign. How about a treeway? Are you serious? Absolutely. Watch this. Hey, you over there. How about a treeway? Oh, oh no, <laughs> no, no. How about no. a three oh, yeah, way? Treeway right
7: hey, now. Can it trekker?
5: Uh what's this
6: about? A three way? You got it, buddy. You're the first for my treeway system. Uh but with, with you and these guys? Uh I I'm not involved here.
1: Oh.
7: Oh, no, Jamie. You, you've made him sad. Uh, Look how sad he is.
6: That's not very neighborly. How are we going to get this treeway system off the ground if yous don't help at all? Um, hey,
0: this is your bright idea. I'm pretty sure it's against my religion. How is this my this idea? This is your idea
6: because... Jesus, they'll be at it forever. Let's get back lady? to this treeway, Kyle.
0: What exactly is
7: this
6: system? I'm so glad you asked. First, the thrusting. Oh. Uh, uh, as we cut across branches... Then there's the flexing.
5: Oh!
6: As we trim the branches, and then the final stroke is oh. to clean up the leaves. <laughs> well, I'm in. Your place or mine? <laughs> I got no trees in my place. That would be ridiculous. How about you just give us your address and we'll be over soon. I'll be waiting. See Jess, how easy was that to gin up business? We want to try. Um, kind. Of- Hey, how about a treeway? Treeway, want a treeway with us? Come on, just join in. Wow,
7: so crazy. I have a treeway. different engagement a at Let's another there, oh, place, so treeway, Hannah, Hannah treeway,
4: don't try to pawn that recorder right. off on me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: This week on the Trump Diaries. Trump displays an altered hurricane map at the Oval Office. The Commerce Secretary threatens the Weather Bureau with firings after it corrects Trump's falsehoods. Trump weaponizes the DOJ against automakers who broke with him on pollution. Trump invites the Taliban to Camp David for 9-11. John Bolton is sacked and the CIA pulls a Russian asset worried that Trump will get him killed. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 959, September 5th, in a bizarre scene at the Oval Office, Trump displayed a doctored National Weather Service map to prove that Alabama would be affected by Hurricane Dorian. The storm's projected path on the map was extended to Alabama with a black marker in an apparent attempt to retroactively justify Trump's incorrect tweet, claiming the state would be affected by Dorian. The NOAA immediately corrected Trump's tweet, noting the state was safe. When asked whether the chart had been drawn on, Trump said, I don't know, I don't know. The House Judiciary Committee has subpoenaed the Department of Homeland Security over Trump's offer to pardon officials who broke the law while carrying out his immigration agenda. Trump has denied making the offer. Others have claimed the closed-door comment was a joke. Trump reportedly told aides to seize land indiscriminately and ignore environmental laws and that he would pardon them if they were arrested. The Pentagon has diverted funding from military construction projects in 23 states, 3 territories and 19 countries to pay for Trump's border wall. The projects being defunded include schools, Hurricane Maria recovery projects at military installations in Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, and construction projects in Europe designed to help allies deter Russia. In total, $3.6 billion will be taken from 127 projects and a judge has ruled that federal government's database of known or suspected terrorists violates the rights of American citizens. The judge, Anthony Trenga, of the District Court of Virginia, said the, quote, currently existing procedural safeguards are not sufficient to address the risk of incorrectly depriving U.S. citizens of their freedom to travel. The ruling calls the constitutionality of the entire watch list into question. As of 2017, roughly 2.1 million people were on that watch list. Day 960, September 6th. The Justice Department opened an antitrust investigation into four automakers who entered into a pact with the state of California to reject Trump's relaxed air pollution and mileage regulations. Ford, Volkswagen, Honda and BMW struck a deal with California to reduce automobile emissions. Mercedes-Benz was to have joined, but backed off after they got wind of the DOJ action. Automakers in general have urged Trump not to roll back Obama-era emissions levels, as it would effectively split the United States into two markets. The move raised alarms and signaled the weaponization and politicization of the Department of Justice. The DOJ explained its action, claiming the automakers would limit consumer choice. But the move fits a pattern of Trump attempting to use the DOJ to punish opponents. Trump has already attacked Amazon twice, attempting to raise post office shipping rates and forcing a review for a military cloud computing contract. Trump was reportedly furious at the automakers and called them into the White House to berate them. Trump is considering a drastic reduction in refugee admissions for next year, possibly eliminating the program altogether. One plan would zero out the program, while another would cut refugee admissions by half or more to just 10,000 or 15,000 people. The moves would make the United States the least welcoming nation for refugees on Earth. Four states are planning to cancel the Republican presidential primaries, despite the fact that Trump has three declared challengers. South Carolina, Nevada, Arizona and Kansas are expected to fully cancel their primaries. It is not unusual for parties to cancel primaries when a candidate is running unopposed. However, Trump is being challenged by former governors Mark Sanford and Bill Weld and former congressman Joe Walsh. Investigators identified failures in Deutsche Bank's money laundering controls related to their dealings with Russian oligarchs. Bank staffers had repeatedly flagged concerns about new Russian clients and transactions, but those notes were ignored by managers. Congress is looking to whether Deutsche allowed entities to funnel illegal funds into the U.S. as a correspondent bank by processing transactions for others. Deutsche was a major lender to Trump and is in possession of his tax returns. And Trump called a Fox News correspondent of the Oval Office to insist that he wasn't wrong when he claimed Hurricane Dorian could have hit Alabama. Fox News senior White House correspondent John Roberts said, quote, he stressed to me that forecast for Dorian last week had Alabama in the warning cone. He insisted that it is unfair to say Alabama was never threatened by the storm and added that Trump was just looking for acknowledgment that he was not wrong for saying that he was in fact wrong for saying that. Trump further complained on Twitter that the media has not apologized to him for four days of corrupt reporting about his wholly false claim. In addition, it was revealed on the weekend that Trump himself drew on the map with a Sharpie. Trump would then spend the rest of the weekend endlessly tweeting grievances about Sharpiegate. Day 961 September 7th the federal agency that oversees the National Weather Service sided with Trump over its own scientists in the ongoing controversy over whether Alabama was at risk of a direct hit from Hurricane Dorian. In an unsigned statement sent out late Friday night, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration stated Alabama was in fact threatened by the storm at the time Trump tweeted, Alabama would be most likely hit much harder than anticipated. This however was false. The statement led to immediate blowback from members of the National Weather Service, who noted it was wholly and utterly incorrect. The former head of the NOAA, David Titley, said to The Washington Post, This is perhaps the darkest day ever for NOAA leadership. I don't know how they will ever look their workforce in the eye again. This is moral cowardice. It was also reported that NOAA officials warned staff not to contradict Trump. The warning came nearly a week before the NOAA publicly backed Trump. Staff were told to, quote, only stick with official National Hurricane Center forecasts if questions arise from, from national-level social media posts, which hit the news this afternoon. They were also told not to provide any opinion on the matter. The order was an explicit reference to Trump and his false statements about Dorian. In response, the NOA's acting chief scientist is now investigating whether the agency's response to the tweets constituted a violation of policies and ethics. The director of the National Weather Service also broke the leadership, calling the agency's response political and a danger to public health and safety in a tearful press conference. Day 962, September 8th. Trump said he canceled a secret meeting at Camp David with Taliban leaders and the president of Afghanistan and was ending negotiations that had appeared to be nearing a peace agreement. Trump issued the statement after the Taliban claimed responsibility for a suicide car bomb attack that killed an American soldier. Experts noted that the Taliban had not agreed to a ceasefire and wondered if Trump was looking for a pretext to end the talks. The USA has been involved in a war in Afghanistan for 17 years. The news that Trump was preparing to host the Taliban at Camp David on the week of the anniversary of 9-11 drew astonishment from across the political spectrum. Later reporting revealed that while the USA and the Taliban had reached an agreement on many areas in principle, the Afghan government was not on board. Trump has complained about the veracity of foreign intelligence from covert sources. Trump told his intelligence chiefs that foreign spies would damage relations with their host countries and undermine, quote, his personal relationships with their leaders. Air Force crews have been flying into Glasgow's Prestwick Airport in Scotland and staying at Trump's Turnberry Golf Resort. The number of such stops by Air Force planes at Prestwick rose from 180 in 2017 to 260 so far this year alone. Those stops included 220 overnight stays. Since October of 2017, records show that 917 payments for expenses including fuel at the airport have been made, worth a total of 17.2 million dollars. Trump actually has a deal with Preswick to make Turnberry a preferred lodger. He also signed a deal in 2014 to help boost trade to the airport, which has been losing money since it was nationalized in 2014. However, Turnberry is the farthest and most expensive property from Preswick. There happen to be more than two dozen hotels, guest houses, and inns within a few miles of the airport. In response, the head of Air Force Mobility Command agreed the decision to place Air Force crew members at a hotel owned by Trump raised serious questions. The Air Force is now reviewing policies on where crews are put up during international trips. Trump, however, denied being involved with the stays at Turnberry by Air Force crews, tweeting that I know nothing but that they have good taste. Trump added, in all caps, nothing to do with me. Day 963, September 9th. The House Judiciary Committee is voting to define its ongoing impeachment investigation. The vote will detail the parameters of the investigation and formalize procedures for an impeachment inquiry. This resolution will mark the first recorded vote related to impeachment by lawmakers even though the committee has already informed federal courts and the public who is currently in the midst of a full-scale impeachment inquiry. In a remarkable scoop, CNN reported that in 2017 the USA extracted one of its highest-level covert spies from inside Russia. The move left the USA essentially blind to Kremlin activities during one of the most confrontational times with Russia, but came about because Trump shared classified information with a Russian foreign minister and ambassador in a May 2017 Oval Office meeting. The CIA believed the source's life was subsequently in imminent danger as a result of Trump's actions. One American news network, a small far-right news network that has been touted as a loyal host by Trump, sued Comcast and Rachel Maddow for libel, following an on claim that the reporter was, quote, literally on the payroll of the Kremlin. The suit claims the OAN is wholly financed by the herrings American family and has never been paid or received a penny from Russia or the Russian government. The reporter in question, Christian Roos, worked for Sputnik News, which has registered as a foreign propaganda outlet and Trump said he would not allow Bahamians into the United States on humanitarian grounds. Trump said that those struggling in the devastated areas of the Bahamas should go to the, quote, large sections of their country that were not hit because he's concerned that bad people and gangs could come in. Day 964, September 10th. Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, threatened to fire top employees at the NOAA after the agency contradicted Trump's claim that Hurricane Dorian might hit Alabama. Ross ordered Neil Jacobs, who is the acting administrator, to fix the agency's perceived contradiction of the president. Jacobs objected but was told by Ross that the political staff would be fired if the situation was not resolved. Ross's threat led to an unusual unsigned statement later that Friday, disavowing the NOA's own position. The revelations have led for calls for Ross to step down. Ross was previously censured by a judge for lying about a citizenship question. Trump fired his third national security adviser, the hawk John Bolton. In a series of mid-morning tweets, Trump claimed he had serious policy disagreements with Bolton and asked for his resignation. Bolton and Trump had clashed over engagement with Iran, Afghanistan, and North Korea. Bolton was also widely seen as pushing for a war in the Persian Gulf. Bolton has claimed, however, he resigned. In a related story, multiple outlets reported that Trump called his second national security advisor and told him he missed him. Trump has been in steady contact with H.R. McMaster and has asked him who he should nominate for Secretary of Defense. Trump, of course, also fired McMaster via Twitter. Trump claimed he'll release an extremely complete report of his financial records in order to dispel the notion he's profiting off his administration. He offered no specifics or timetable for that report. The House is investigating efforts by Trump and Rudy Giuliani to, quote, pressure the government of Ukraine to assist Trump's re-election campaign. Giuliani has admitted pressuring the government to investigate Hunter Biden. He's the son of Democratic former Vice President Joe Biden and the leading Democratic presidential candidate. Hunter served on the board of Burisma, a Ukrainian gas company. The House called this an illegal attempt to, quote, manipulate the Ukrainian justice system and more Americans went without health insurance for the first time since the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, passed in 2010. About 27.5 million people, or 8.5 percent of the population, lacked health insurance for all of 2018, that is up from 7.9 percent the year before. Analysts pointed to steady attacks on the marketplace by Republicans and roadblocks put in place by Trump that have kept people from signing up for the market. Day 965, September 11th. Voters in North Carolina narrowly elected Dan Bishop, a Republican state senator, in a special election. This election was seen as a test of Trump's clout again of 2020, and it showed steep erosion for the Republican Party in American suburbs. The result also brought an end to an embarrassment in the state where the challenger Democrat Dan McCrady had lost another election, but one that was tainted by fraud on the Republican side. A court threw that out and ordered this special election. Trump had won this district by 12 percentage points in 2016 chaos continued in the United Kingdom after a Scottish High Court ruled that Prime Minister Boris Johnson's decision to suspend Parliament was unlawful. The panel found the decision to send lawmakers home for five weeks at the height of the Brexit crisis was unlawful because it had the purpose of stymieing Parliament. The ministers have asked for Parliament to be immediately reconvened. The Supreme Court, which is in London, will now review the case. Johnson has now been dealt seven damaging defeats in a row. He has tried and failed to use Trumpist tactics in the United Kingdom. Trump ordered a major crackdown on homelessness in California. He has repeatedly attacked Democratic politicians in the state over the state's homelessness issue, calling it a disgrace to our country. California has experienced a surge in homelessness, with populations increasing in some cities by 25 percent. Surging rents in the Bay Area fueled by the tech boom and Trump's tightening of immigrants eligibility for federal assistance have exacerbated that problem as well. Trump is reportedly considering raising homeless encampments and moving unhoused people into government facilities. Trump's approval rating among voting age Americans is now at 38%. That is down from 44% in June. 56% say they disapprove of his performance in office. Only 35% approve of his trade war with China. 60% of Americans expect a recession to hit. support background checks for gun purchases, including for sales at gun shows. In response to the poll, a panicked Trump tweeted, quote, ABC Washington Post poll was the worst and most inaccurate poll of any taken prior to the 2016 election. When my lawyers protested, they took a 12 point down and brought it to almost even by election day. It was a fake poll by two very bad and dangerous media outlets. ABC responded by noting that they had never, ever received a legal complaint over their polls. The Washington Post wasn't involved in the ABC tracking poll that had Trump down 12 points. And as a result, there's obviously no basis for the claim that they fixed subsequent poll results because Trump complained. Trump was also rattled by a poll showing him losing badly to all Democratic candidates. He tweeted, This is a phony suppression poll meant to build up their Democrat partners. I haven't even started campaigning yet, and I'm constantly fighting fake news like Russia, Russia, Russia. In fact, Trump has arguably never stopped campaigning. He held a campaign rally on Monday in North Carolina. These are the Trump Diaries.
0: Burr Oak played a scorching John Daly session this week in Studio A. This is the band's first single, Southside. It was engineered and mastered by Ari Shellist.
8: I'm sure you probably seen this all over the internet. A uh, mm-hmm. new scientific picture came out after years of data collection. Right. Global team of programmers pouring over mm-hmm. terabytes of data, dozens of of radio images. Right. It and finally, though, um, the for the first time ever, sure. a picture, an image yes. of the GIR field, the gravitational adjacent radio field or the Garfield, perhaps. Um, so uh, you I know you studied electrical engineering at, at Columbia yes. for a semester. Yes. So so this is probably you're probably familiar with this. But for the sake of the listener, yeah. the gravitational adjacent radio field is um, so there's a variation in radio waves mm-hmm. that occur um, as they pass over objects, sure. particularly um, sort of these sedentary, high-mass, large surface area objects. Yeah. Something that, like, perhaps uh, some sandpaper or um, uh, diatomaceous earth compacted mm-hmm. or perhaps even a uh, sort of a furry or fuzzy object of yes. sufficiently large yeah. mass and low momentum. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, Stephen Hawking talked about hairless Black holes mm-hmm. these are very hairy, right, and it's the opposite of that, yeah, exactly, and so there's these variations in the in radio waves that occur over that, and these had been hypothesized to exist for a while, but there had been no clear image of them, so what ended up being constructed, excuse yes. me, was the um an array. Specifically, the laser amplified sonic and gravitational numerator array, okay. or the uh, LASAGNA. Um, so, okay, what this device did was it's a it's a, it's really a series of devices. Okay, um, well, it's an array. It's 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 an array, correct? So it, it's it was kind of built in parts or layers, <laughs> perhaps. All uh, yes, many of those layers being very similar. Right. Yeah. All across it's, the world. Yeah. It's a number of uh, uh, there are a number of uh, essentially flexible wafers um, sandwiching a uh, highly viscous fluid.
7: <laughs> what, what color is that fluid?
8: Yeah, I, I would not. I would not know. You would have to ask Um that being said, I do know it's it's really not a fluid; it's more of a colloid. You yeah. sort of a sort of a um, sort of organic, yeah. Um, and what what happens is is that there's th- through these wafers into this um, this uh, this suspended um, uh, let's just call it a sauce. Um, it reacts to minor variations in these energy fields, as would be expected from the Garfield. And what that allows it to do is the LASAGNA um yeah. it lures in the garfield and then through the um movement of these wafers uh it ejects something known as oscillating deuterium yes. um aka ods um and these ods what happens is is, is as is the, as easy. as the garfield is trapped in the um the numerator array sure. um the ods are ejected the oscillating de- deuterium is d- ejected sure. or perhaps kicked yes. out of the space by by the GAR yeah. field, um, and it is the detection of these um, these falling ODs that allow uh, a picture to be put together. Sure, um, that's, and, that's amazing, right? And so you've probably seen the picture I've online. I've seen yes, I've seen three pri- three pictures right next to each other. Are we yet? 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 Are we yet?
0: The Lump Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit (laughs) lumpenradio.com. you.